Father, we thank you for your grace to us. God, thank you that we get to be a family, that we get to be loved by you as our Father, a love that never stops, that never gives up, that never ends or walks away no matter what. Lord, thank you that you allow us to be in relationship with true brothers and sisters in Christ. We get to see your faithfulness, not only in our lives, but in our family, in one another. And Lord, I thank you. I thank you for this good news that Charles and Renee get to celebrate on their 60th wedding anniversary, a monument of your grace and your faithfulness to sustain them in the highs and lows, the mountaintops and valleys. Lord, you've faithfully kept them as one in Christ and one another. And Lord, we praise you for it. And I know as I pray that there are many in this room and many watching us online who are in the middle of their own fight. For some, it's cancer. For some, it's another form of sickness or weakness or just the challenges of living in a broken life, a broken home, a broken world. And Lord, we pray that we would know that the name of Jesus is the name above every name, that demons will bow and tremble at the name of Jesus, that hell shudders and is defeated at the name of Jesus, that no weapon formed against us as your people can stand in the name of Jesus, and it's under the name of Christ that we worship and we celebrate and we live. And this morning, I pray we learn according to his word. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen, amen. God bless you, church. You may be seated. And if you have your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. Daniel, we're back in our study of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter five. And this morning, as we study this passage of scripture, I do want us to take just a few moments because we've been out of this study for a few weeks now to review a few of the pertinent facts that we've learned over seven weeks prior in studying chapters one through four. So if you're joining us new this morning, you just need a refresher. Here's a couple minute overview of what we've learned this far in the book of Daniel. Uh, the book starts with the Babylonian king, King Nebuchadnezzar, invading God's holy city, the city of Jerusalem, and then taking a group of Jewish people back to live as captives in the city of Babylon. That group included a man named Daniel, who was about 15 years old at the time of his captivity. And from the very beginning of his time in Babylon, you find that Daniel is consistently facing the pressure to turn his back on God and adopt the godless pagan culture of Babylon. But what we find is that Daniel becomes a picture of what it looks like to live as a faithful person in the kingdom of God while you're exiled in the sinful fallen kingdoms of this earth. Through it all, Daniel is faithful to God, but even more... God is faithful to Daniel. We see that over and over and over again. But the other thing we need to see about the beginning chapters of this story is that this isn't just a story about what God wanted to do in the life of Daniel and his friends. This is really a picture of what God wanted to do throughout the entire world. What he wanted to do in the most powerful man, a man named Nebuchadnezzar, what he wanted to do in all of the kingdoms that existed at that time and those that would come in the future. You see, in chapter 2, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream, and it's a dream about the future. 
a dream about God's plan for the nations. He tells Nebuchadnezzar that Babylon is doomed to fall because the Medes and the Persians were going to come and overthrow his empire. And the one thing that God is establishing is not only that Babylon would fall, but all of the earthly kingdoms will one day fall. All of this that we live in here on earth is temporary. The only permanent eternal kingdom is the kingdom that God himself is establishing. That was the point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter two. But what you find is that rather than being humble before the God who is setting up a kingdom that will never end, Nebuchadnezzar continues in pride. He's persistent in his pride-filled, arrogant life, and he just keeps plowing forward as though he is God and God is not. And he keeps on with his patterns of sin and self-centeredness until finally in chapter four, God teaches Nebuchadnezzar a lesson. He humbles Nebuchadnezzar in a way that causes Nebuchadnezzar actually to lose his mind and think that he's a wild animal and live outside in the elements for a period of time. And what we find is that through that experience, Nebuchadnezzar is finally realizing that he is just a mortal man who is fragile at best and that the most high God is the only true God. So he's humbled there before the Lord and he repents. And actually, Daniel chapter 4, the The chapter right before what we'll be studying this morning is a letter that King Nebuchadnezzar wrote to the entire world sharing his lesson, the lesson that God, the most high, is the only God and every heart will be humbled one day before him and urging the people of this world, including you and me, to bow in humility before God. And that brings us then to chapter five. It's been about 30 years since chapter four. And I'm not talking about the amount of time it's been since we've studied chapter four, just three weeks. But it's been about 30 years since the end of chapter four and the events of chapter five. And Nebuchadnezzar's no longer on the scene. There's a new king in Babylon. His name is Belshazzar. And I've got to tell you, for seven weeks, I struggled with the fact that I had to say Nebuchadnezzar every week and I had to type out Nebuchadnezzar in my notes. And I got to be honest, that's a hard word to type out. And I was looking forward to getting to change. And lo and behold, what name do I have to type out now? Belshazzar. A lot easier, right? Here's Belshazzar, the new king. He's ruling in Babylon. And historians actually tell us that this king, uh, Belshazzar, was actually co-ruler of the empire with his father, a man named Nadonidus. Lots of great names back then. Nadonidus and his son Belshazzar ruled together over Babylon. But Nadonidus was a really unpopular guy. So he left the country and traveled the world and left his son Belshazzar as the ruler in effect in the city of Babylon. And so you find in this passage that the author refers to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel refers to Nebuchadnezzar as as the father of Belshazzar. And I bring that up because I don't want you to stumble over that. That's another word that just means forefather. It's the way the Jews would have said that Abraham is father Abraham. Even though he wasn't their direct father, he was the grandfather, great-grandfather, forefather over the nation. That's how that word's being used here. So you have these two co-ruling kings, Nadonidus, Belshazzar, over this kingdom of Babylon. And what we find in our And our text is the last day of the kingdom of Babylon. I actually want to start our study by looking at the very last verses in this chapter. Look at verse 30 and 31. I want you to see 
the end of this story as context as we begin this study. Verse 30 says this, that very night. So the events of this chapter occur inside of one day. And by the end of the night, here's what happens. Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. Okay, stop right there. This is the moment that God had revealed to Nebuchadnezzar about 60 years ago in chapter 2. The Medes and the Persians, God said, were going to take over. And here they are. The Medes and the Persians are taking over. And just think about the dynamic here. Not only was there this known prophecy that God said was going to take place, Babylon would fall to the Medes and Persians, we know that the Medo-Persian army was just outside the walls of Babylon because they're inside the city putting in a new government by the end of the night. And we're pretty sure they didn't fly a plane from Persia to get there, right? They were right there just outside the city wall. So chapter 5 then, take that all into context, is telling us about a man. His name is Belshazzar. And here's what he's doing while a prophecy of God is unfolding before his eyes. God said the end is coming. And what does a man named Belshazzar do when he sees the signs all around him that that prophecy's coming true? How does he live? What does he do? Well, that's what we see in this chapter. Look at verse 1, chapter 5. It says, King Belshazzar made a feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of, this, of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he had tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and the silver of Nebuchadnezzar, his father, that had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem, be brought, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem. And the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Stop right there. Now get this picture. While the enemy surrounds the city, the end is on the horizon, Belshazzar throws a party. He invites a thousand of his lords, the important notoriety people of his kingdom to join him in the banquet hall. And they engage in this feast that is basically a festival of debauchery and sin. Verses two through four describe a scene for us. And what we find is a description of the sins of Babylon right here in front of our eyes. You find sexual immorality. Without going into great detail, this feast is intended to be filled with sexual immorality because the king brings in all of his concubines, sexual slaves, basically, and he commands them to get drunk with all of the lords, the important influential men of Babylon. And I could list drunkenness as a sin as well, but you find that it's intended to bring about sexual immorality inside of this great hall. Materialism and idolatry are part of this. I put them together because really they're the same thing. Materialism is valuing the stuff of this world in a way that we are called to value God and God alone. And here they're worshiping the gods of silver, gold, the things that they make by their own hand, materialism, idolatry, and blasphemy. 
They bring in the vessels of gold that had been made for the worship of God at the temple of Jerusalem. Blasphemy is not a word that we use a lot anymore, but it's something that's taking place all around us all the time. Blasphemy is the act of speaking or living in a way that insults someone or something sacred. So taking anything that's made for the worship of God and using it for anything other than the glory of God is blasphemy. And that's what's happening here. These vessels made for the worship of God are not being used for the glory of God. They're being used to get drunk to facilitate a sexually immoral atmosphere and to worship the false idols of materials made by gold and silver in people's hands. Guys, here's the reality. A blind man could see that the prophecies of God were being fulfilled right here in front of their eyes. On the other side of this wall is a, an army, God said, would bring about the end of this entire kingdom. And while that's taking place, the sin of Babylon is reaching a crescendo. Sexual immorality, materialism, and blasphemy. And church, at this point in the chapter, there's something that we need to see if we're going to interpret this with biblical fidelity. We're not just looking back at the fall of Babylon here in Daniel 5. As a matter of fact, we're actually looking at events that foreshadow the future. You want to study the Bible a little bit? Yes. Good. Here we go. I gave you an opportunity to respond. Three of you did, and I'm really proud of you. Here's what I mean. Here's what I mean. The kingdom of Babylon is not just a kingdom of the past. The Bible prophesies that Babylon will actually be reestablished on this earth before the return of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, the defeat of the kingdom of Babylon on this earth is one of the final things that Jesus does when he returns and establishes his kingdom in this world. So let's actually move forward in scripture and take a look at the description of Babylon once it's reestablished on the earth. You can go in your Bibles. I'll have these verses on the screen, but at the very end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 17 The Bible says this, speaking about John as he's writing here in the power of the Spirit. Says this in John, or Revelation chapter 17. John is speaking and says, And he carried me away in the Spirit into a wilderness. And I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. Now notice this phrase. That was full of blasphemous names. That's seven heads and ten horns. We'll talk about that in a few weeks when we get to the prophecies later on in Daniel. But you find that there's this woman. She's sitting on a beast. The way she travels, the way she moves throughout the world, the way that she spreads her news and influences on this beast that is filled with what? Blasphemous names. Now, down in uh, chapter 17, verse 18, it explains who this woman is. The woman that you saw is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. And so this woman is representing a great city that will exercise power over all the kingdoms and nations of this earth. So this woman is spread throughout the world. Her power is is, is traveling throughout the world on this beast 
by the power of something filled with blasphemous names. This woman is a great city that influences the kingdoms of the world. We'll keep reading in the next chapter, Revelation 18. Look at the first couple, couple verses here. Verse 2 says this. And the angel called out with a mighty voice, speaking about this city. Now notice what it says. Fallen, fallen is what? Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. For all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And the kings of the earth, like the great lords in the banquet hall of Daniel 5, have committed sexual immorality with her. And the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Guys, see it? See here? This Babylon that's going to be established before the return of Jesus is going to influence all the nations of the earth. Let me ask you this. Is the United States of America a nation? All the nations of the earth will be influenced by this city of Babylon. And according to the book of Revelation, it says what we just read, there are going to be several distinct indicators that the demonic spirit, and that's what the words are there, the demons and the demonic spirits that spread the, 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 the influence of Babylon throughout the world. There are several indications that Babylon is reemerging and being established around us. See if these indicators sound familiar. Sexual immorality. It says in verse 3, all nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. Materialism. Verse 3 says, the merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious living. Blasphemy. Chapter 17, verse 3 says, I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast who was full of blasphemous names. Guys, the resurgence of Babylon on this earth will be marked by sexual immorality, materialism, and blasphemy. Just like the Babylon from 2,600 years ago. Just like with a scene from Daniel 5. The nations of this earth will descend more and more into those sins before Jesus comes again. And friend, you don't have to be a Bible scholar to see that our nation is drunk on the wine of Babylon. We are living in Babylon. The spirit of this age is the spirit of Babylon. Do you know what that means for us? It means that we are seeing the prophecies of God fulfilled right in front of our eyes. Right on the other side of that wall. Just this last week, our state board of education passed a rule restricting teachers in third grade and below from teaching children about homosexuality and transgender issues. And that measure did pass. And that's good news, yeah. But the headlines that covered that news story described the ruling as controversial. Let me just ask you this. What does it say about the sexual morality of a nation when it has become controversial that five and six-year-old children should not be taught 
about homosexuality and transgenderism at school. It says that we have fallen off the cliff into sexual immorality. What about materialism and idolatry? Does the average American value God more than the stuff of this world? What about blasphemy? Is there any concern at all in our culture for the sacredness of God? How is his name used? How are the truths about him preserved? Friends, we are living in Babylon. You know what that means as we study this chapter? It means that Daniel 5 is not a look back in time. It's a warning about our future. The writing is on the wall. Now go back to Daniel 5 and let's keep reading with that in mind. Daniel 5 verse 5 says this, Immediately, what's that phrase? Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace opposite the lampstand. God writes on the wall. He makes sure to write next to the lamp so it's bright and you can see it. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed, you think? And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way and his knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the Chaldeans and the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He says third ruler because there are two rulers already on the throne and the third is the highest position he could appoint someone. Verse eight, then all the king's wise men came in. But they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed. He was like that horse of many colors from the Wizard of Oz. This guy just keeps changing color. And his lords were perplexed. Okay, verse 5 starts with the word immediately. Okay, so that word is emphasizing the suddenness of all of this. A party, a leisurely atmosphere is occurring in the banquet hall. And then suddenly, immediately, you might even say in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, God shows up. And a drunk king gets sober in a hurry. He didn't know what's going on. You can tell he's unaware of what all of this means. But the mere presence of God's fingers is enough To make his knees knock together. And when it says that his limbs gave way, he fell to the ground. He yells out, I've fallen and I can't get up. And he's asking for his enchanters to come and tell him what the writing means. And if you're part of this study, you know this is about the umpteenth time. That's the technical term. The umpteenth time in Daniel that so-called wise men from Babylon are called to explain something mysterious and they have absolutely no idea what's going on. And there's a sermon here that I don't have time to preach. I encourage you to meditate on it because it's a message about the so-called wisdom of our age. What happens when the wisdom of the wise men in Babylon come to the table? Absolutely nothing is what occurs. They are clueless as a vegetarian at Sonny's barbecue. They don't know. They don't know what to do next. 
And for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize this next little session section. The queen hears what's going on. Now, the queen wouldn't have been in that banquet hall because she would have been one person who would have been preserved from that kind of sexual immorality going on in there. But she hears the commotion. Something's changed. And she comes in to find the king on the ground flipping out, his wise men standing around him useless. And she remembers someone. She remembers a guy named Daniel. He'd been the prime minister of... Babylon when she was younger. And one thing that he was known for was having a God-given wisdom. And so she says, why don't you bring in Daniel? And that's exactly what happens. And once Daniel comes in, he's promised that he will get a lot of money and power if he can interpret the writing that's on the wall. Let's pick up in verse 17. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, let your gifts be for yourself. Hey, you can keep all your stuff, king. And give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll read the writing to the king and make known to him in the interpretation. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he, God, gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down for his, from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling place was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, until he knew beyond any doubt that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. I love this scene. It's been almost 70 years since Daniel was taken captive into Babylon. That makes him in in his mid-80s. And he's just been offered a lot of money and a lot of power if he can interpret. And he says, I'm good. I'll do this one pro bono. I've got everything I need. And then he agrees to interpret the writing on the wall. And I hope you notice what happens. He says, I'll interpret the writing on the wall. And what does he do? He doesn't interpret the writing on the wall at first. In typical old man fashion, he tells a story from when he was younger, right? (laughs) says, I'm 85, you can wait. I'm going to tell you about when I was young. He recaps the events from 30 years ago that were recorded in the last chapter. But here's the reality. He's not just repeating himself. He's not just off on a tangent or trying to relive his glory days. This isn't the details of, of the state championship football game. He's setting the stage for the interpretation of the the writing on the wall by reminding Belshazzar about his forefather, Nebuchadnezzar. In verses 18 and 19, he says, remember, remember, remember that everything Nebuchadnezzar had was given by God. You know that. Verse 20, remember, remember that Nebuchadnezzar's heart was proud. He didn't bow in humility before the Lord who'd made him and had given him everything that he had. In pride, he stood thinking he was the reason for his greatness. And that's why God taught him a lesson. Verse 21, the lesson is that the most high God and only God rules in the kingdoms of mankind and sets over it whom he will. In other words, he says, here's a lesson you need to remember, youngin. God is God and we are not. God is the source of life and breath and every good thing. And it's God 
who will bring humility to every proud heart. One way or the other, every knee will bow before the Lord God Almighty. That's the preface to the interpretation of the dream. And then he says one more thing before he tells him what the dream means. Look at verse 22 and 23. You, his son, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart. Notice this phrase. It's huge, guys. Though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them and you have praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood and stone which do not see or hear or know but the God in whose hand is your breath. I love this. He's reminding him, you don't draw a single breath without the grace of God. Every breath you breathe is a gift like every gift Nebuchadnezzar received from God Almighty. He says, listen, you knew. You knew what he had said. You knew what he had done. Verse 23 tells us the story, the point. Belshazzar did not humble his heart, even though he knew everything we've talked about so far. He grew up in Nebuchadnezzar's family. He knew that Nebuchadnezzar had lost his mind. He knew that he had walked in pride and was humbled by God. He would have read Nebuchadnezzar's letter to the entire world and the kingdom of Babylon, and no doubt he knew God had prophesied that the Medes and the Persians would overthrow Babylon. He knew what was true, but persisted in pride. As a matter of fact, I hope you notice that when he confronts the pride of Belshazzar, he couches all of the sins we detailed from verses two through four inside of this accusation of pride. What he's doing there is he's saying the root of all sin All the sin of Babylon, sexual immorality, the root of idolatry and materialism, the root of blasphemy is pride. Pride is the root of Belshazzar's sin. Pride is the root of every one of our sins. Friends, in essence, pride is what happens when we think we know better than God. And sin is what we do when we live like we know better than God. Sin is what happens when pride is rooted in our hearts and we disregard God as God and take the throne of our own lives. And what will happen to those who persist in pride? Those who don't lay themselves down before Almighty God and say, my life and all that I am belongs to you. What happens? Well, the writing is on the wall. Keep reading, verse 24 through 28. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. This God sent this hand and wrote this on the wall. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Meany, meany, tekel, and parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Meaning, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tickle, you have been weighed in the balances and have found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Daniel explains the meaning behind the three words that God had written on the wall. Mini means number. It's basically like the term mina, a measurement of weight. Mini was number. God had numbered the days of Babylon 
And he'd numbered how many days it would be a kingdom. He also numbered out the number of days Belshazzar would live. In other words, those days were numbered from the very beginning. They were limited. They wouldn't last forever. We're looking at the last day of this man and the last day of this kingdom. And they had always been destined to come to an end. They had been numbered by God from the beginning. Tekel means measured. It's a picture of a scale that weighs out different measures of weight. On one side, he's saying Belshazzar and his life are here. On the other side is God's standard for what is right. The Bible word for that is righteousness. And at the end of the days, God had numbered for Belshazzar a Weight was taken. A measurement was taken. His life was weighed in the balances. And because he was proud and never humbled his heart before God, he was found wanting. He was found lacking. He did not measure to God's standard of righteousness. And because of that, Paris is divided or torn to pieces is what that means word means. He isn't saying that Babylon will be torn in two and part will be given to the Medes, the other part to the Persians. He's saying it's going to be ripped to shreds. It's going to be destroyed and everything along with it, including Belshazzar. So put all those pieces together and here's the interpretation of Daniel chapter 5. The writing on the wall said that God had numbered a man's days and at the end of those days, at that last day, his life was measured and found wanting. So God brought judgment that destroyed him. That's exactly what happened next. Look again at the verses we read at the beginning, verses 30 and 31. That very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed. And Darius, the Mede, received the kingdom being about 62 years old. Guys, true to his word, God brought judgment to the foolish king who knew the truth, but refused to humble himself before God. And remember what we saw earlier. This isn't the story of something that happened 2,600 years ago. It's also foreshadowing the future, your future, my future. The spirit of Babylon is alive and well, and the writing on the wall still stands. Listen to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. It is appointed for man to once die, and after that comes judgment. Friend, the Bible is clear. Like Nebuchadnezzar, your days and my days have been numbered. Not just the days of our nation, but the days of our lives. The end is coming, and it could be today, suddenly, immediately, In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, the judgment of God is coming. And we will be weighed in the balance of God's righteousness. And our eternal destiny will be determined by what we do between now and then. Will we persist in our pride like Belshazzar or will we repent from our sin and turn to Jesus in mercy? And friends, that's the big idea for us today. God's judgment is coming. So humble people repent while there's still time. God's judgment is coming and humble people repent 
while there's still time, friend, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, the Bible says the end will come. The writing is on the wall and all of us are in Belshazzar's place. You and I know the truth. We've just read it in the Bible. You know what that means? We are without excuse. And so the application for us is for us as individuals. You know, it's easy for us to see the sin of our nation and be grieved that America lives like a godless nation. But the question is, what about us? It's easy to point our finger at the culture at large and condemn the people in this world for the pride of their sin. But what about us? Guys, the painful truth is that many so-called followers of Christ are taking part in the sin-filled party that this world is hosting. Listen to Revelation chapter 18, verse 4, where we left off earlier. Then I heard another voice speaking into this. A voice from heaven, the voice of God himself saying about Babylon and those people there. Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you share in her plagues. Do you hear what God is saying to those who are living at the time in the age of this world when the spirit of Babylon emerges? The spirit that you and I acknowledge is already at work around us just on the other side of that wall. Do you hear what God is saying to his people, not just to the nation at large? He's saying this, stop living like you're part of Babylon. Don't take part in her sin or you will share in her plagues. Friend, this is a sober call to every follower of Jesus Christ. And I realize that the pulpits of our nation don't want to preach sermons like this. I know that it isn't funny or entertaining or palatable to a modern mindset. I realize that this is the word of God. Stop living like you're part of Babylon. You are not. You have been bought with a price. The blood of Jesus Christ. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit which is in you, which you have of God. Come out from The wicked city. Don't take part in her sin. Repent in humility and be saved. And let me just ask about the sins of Babylon. What about our moral purity, church? In 2020, the Barna Group conducted a survey and found that 65% of non-Christian men view pornography at least once a month. In that same survey, they found that number to be 64% among professing Christian men. I don't say that, men, to shame you or shock you. I share that because it's a wake-up call to us who are living in Babylon. Renew your fight against the seduction 
of the sinful city we live in by turning to Jesus in humble faith. This fall, we launched an initiative of small groups among men. In January, we're going to invite you back around the table to begin new fellowships where we will call the men of this church to step into God's holy design. Don't wait for January. Will you start this morning by confessing your sin before Almighty God, agreeing with Him in humility and faith and turning to Jesus to deliver you from sin by His power? Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sin and her plagues. What about the idolatry of materialism? Does your life mirror the materialism of our culture? Do you live in pursuit of the stuff of this world or the glory of Jesus? Ask yourself this, am I working for money so I can live out the American dream or advance the gospel of Jesus throughout the world? Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sin and share in her plagues. What about blasphemy? You're the temple of God and your whole life is designed to worship him. For followers of Jesus, here's what that means. Our whole life is called to be sacred, which means the way we approach our marriage, the way we approach our parenting, the way we approach our work, the way we approach our neighbors is to be used not for our own benefit or in our own wisdom, but for the glory of Jesus Christ displayed in this world, not By living in lockstep at our work, in our neighborhoods, in our homes, or our marriages like the rest of our culture. Come out from her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and share in her plagues. So church, what does humility look like for you today? Because the root of sin is pride. A pride that says my life belongs to me. I do what I want. A pride that refuses in humility to lay yourself down and say, Lord, I belong to you. You have the right to tell me how to live and do as you please. You have the right as my Lord to lead me where you'd have me go. What does humility look like in your marriage, in your parenting, at your work, in your home, What does it look like to fight the seduction of Babylon, the pride of this culture, by turning in humble faith? What does it look like? Well, I'm glad you asked. Because Hebrews 12 tells us, verses 1 and 2 of Hebrews 12 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, men like Daniel, who lived faithfully in the middle of Babylon, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely... And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. How? How do we run? By looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Listen, friend, we don't fight the seduction of the sins of this world in our own power, or that would be another form of pride. It would be our way of saying we can do this. We can live pleasing to God. We can defeat sin. We don't defeat sin in our own power. We don't fight flesh with flesh. We fight with the power of the Spirit. We look to Jesus. We say, Jesus, you went to the cross to pay for the sin that I've committed, the ways I've taken part in the sins of Babylon. You rose from the grave and are seated at the right hand of God so you could raise me up and seat me in heaven by your power, not my own. And you look to Jesus, 
Over and again, as you run the race, he sets before you by saying, Jesus, fill me with power. Jesus, be Jesus in me. Jesus, enable me to remain faithful by your faithfulness and power in my life. Friend, what does it look like for you to lay your life down before Jesus and say, Jesus, save me from the sin of this world. Save me from the seduction of of Babylon, the spirit that is all around me. I can't go anywhere in this community. I can't watch anything on TV. I cannot be anywhere in this world without being exposed to some element of that sin. Jesus, deliver me by your power. Save me over by your grace. I trust you will deliver me one day to heaven. Jesus, be Jesus in me. Friend, the reality is this. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled all around us, just on the other side of the wall. And God's judgment is soon coming. It could be today. So humble people, repent of sin and turn to Jesus, trusting in him to be all they need before it's too late. Are you trusting in Jesus? Would you bow your head? Close your eyes. If you were to stand before God today, like one day you will, and your life would be weighed in the balance, what is your hope? for being righteous, for measuring up to the glory of God's righteousness. There's only one hope, and it's Jesus, that he has paid the price for your unrighteousness on the cross. And he will give and live out his righteousness to you as you trust in him. So are you trusting in Jesus for this day and the day of judgment? If you've never placed your faith in Christ, right now would you call on Jesus? Simply pray before God, acknowledging your sin, acknowledging that you've broken his perfect standard of righteousness, and in faith, acknowledge that Jesus lived and died and rose again in your place. Receive his forgiveness through faith and ask him for grace to live for his glory. For those of you who say, I'm trusting in Jesus How may the Spirit of God be speaking to you about the ways that pride is rooted in your heart and being expressed by sin in your life? In what ways are you living like you're your own God by doing life your own way? Would you lay your life down again before the Lord and say, It is yours? It is yours. Would you call on him for power to fight the seduction of sin? Father, we hear your word and it is with sober hearts, God. And we thank you for the sobriety. Thank you that you would help us to sober up while the world is drunk. 
living in denial of reality that Jesus is coming again. Thank you for sober moments. And Father, I pray that our hearts would contemplate the truth of the gospel that we cannot measure up apart from Christ. Apart from Jesus, we are doomed to live in Babylon and take part in her plagues. But Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you for the hope of glory. We thank you that heaven is our true home and one kingdom that will last forever. And we pray that you would fill us with unwavering faith to live in the midst of a dark age as lights that shine to the glory of our Father who's in heaven. And we ask all of these things in Jesus' name.